Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today we are continuing our discussion on wine importers in the U.S., and it is a part two with. Nick Ramkowski, the founder and owner of Vine Connections. If you didn't listen to the first part of this episode, please take a listen to episode 162, where Nick talks about how he built a national importer of South American wines and sake. And we're going to continue with part two right now. So you mentioned that for your suppliers and your partners, you're the marketing and sales arm in the U.S. How do you think about building your wineries brands in the U.S.? The stronger we can make those brands, the easier the future will be for us because there's two types of brands. There's perennials and annuals. And so, Peter, you're wondering what is a perennial and what's an annual, right? So an annual is you have a a brand and you sell a case and then that case doesn't grow. You have to find a new place to sell that case. And so every year you're selling the same case over and over and over again, right? Because it's not a perennial. When you have perennials, that first case you sold turns into a case and a half, and then maybe it turns into three cases, and then it turns into five cases. Your goal is to have brands that become perennials more often than annuals, because otherwise you're always just fighting hard to find the next place to sell that one case. While you might sell 10 cases a year, it's 10 different people every year, and that is a lot of work. So really what you want to do is be more focused and try and build your brands into perennials so that they have their own natural cycle that grows every year. And so is there something from a marketing perspective that you're doing to go from annual to perennial? I assume everything starts kind of as an annual and then becomes a perennial. Everything starts as an annual and very few things actually become perennials. That is the problem, right? That would be fantastic if things automatically went from annuals to perennials. They don't. And so I think it's the value you offer in the bottle. That's the most important. Packaging. We work very closely with all of our suppliers on packaging. We have three designers on staff, right? Because we do a lot of the packaging. It's relationships. So making sure that you've identified the right spots for, you know, right types of customers, for your brands, you support that relationship. So by, if it's on-premise, doing staff trainings on a regular basis, if it's a retailer doing consumer events on a regular basis. And so it's that consistency. Again, you don't just sell a case and then move on. It's okay, I sold the case. Now how do I get those 12 bottles into the consumer's hands so that six of them will want to come back and buy them? Again, so it's that consistency of relationship and then really identifying champions on your distributor sales team who some people just don't want to sell South American wine. They're more interested in French or Italian or California. They're not really interested in South American wine. And while they'll sell some, it's not going to be their focus. But there are definitely people who love what we're doing and love the stories behind our suppliers. And those are the champions that we want to cultivate and because you turn them into perennials as well. And there's a, a whole puzzle that has to come together in order to make something go from an annual to a perennial. And so press is another aspect of that. We work very closely with the press and I think that those relationships are important too. And then 
as an importer versus a domestic winery, you want people, when they turn the bottle around, to look at who it's imported by. So that's something that's different than a domestic winery. A domestic winery has their name on it, and they could be cellared and bottled by, they can be produced and bottled by, they can be estate bottled. We also develop our brand, Buying Connections, now Giovino on the wine side and Kome Collective on the, on the Japanese beverage side. For people to go, I love wines from Giovino, I love wine sake from Kome Collective, just like they pick up a bottle of Rosenthal and they go, I love Rosenthal or I love Kermit Lynch or I love... That, I think, is also important, as well as the producers to make sure that us as the importer have consistent producers that have consistent quality because when someone looks at it and goes, I'm never disappointed when I buy a, a bottle from Giovino. So I'm looking for South American wine tonight. I don't know this producer, but I know I've seen Giovino on a previous wine that I bought. So I'm going to buy that bottle. Same with Kome Collective. Go into a wine shop and there's 20 bottles of sake on the shelf. It looks like hieroglyphics because, and so which one are you going to buy? So first of all, we were the first to put English on the front labels of sake producers and give them English given names. The idea behind that was so you and I could identify with something and remember it much easier than trying to remember the kanji on the bottle. So those are all aspects of what we do. And the most important is you have to be consistent about it. You don't just do it one time and think it's going to work. So it's consistency that helps you develop those brands. And so if you have a new winery that you just bring into the portfolio, what are the first things that you would do to start to build their brand? Depending on the winery and what they produce and so forth, we have information that where we do well with those types of wines, right? So let's say a Cabernet producer, we know where we sell Cabernet already. So we can identify those accounts. We know our distributors who do well with Cabernet and what salespeople like to sell Cabernet from South America. So those are the first parts. But we've already made sure that the quality of the juice is in the bottle. We've already made sure that the packaging is where we want it to be. We've already made sure that the SRP reflects great value. And so those things are done before we get to market. And then we can go from there. It doesn't mean that we want to go to all 50 states at once because the shotgun approach is not necessarily the most successful type of approach. Sometimes being a sniper is more effective. We can then build out a plan on how to go to market with that particular wine or brand. And would you approach anything differently if it was a brand that was already in the U.S. that you're taking over from another importer? Well, we are a little bit of an anomaly. We've only done that once in our history. And I'm not sure I have enough information to say about that. It's something that we're looking at, though, more, Peter, because we've gone from zero to 60 all the time. And sometimes maybe it's more interesting to go from 40 to 60 than always starting at zero. So we're looking at those options. I'll get back to you on that. What have you seen as the most effective marketing strategies to build demand for your wines that you're bringing in? The first demand you want is from your distributor. So press is important. Effective work with, effect, being effective in the marketplace is also important because if your distributor has confidence in you as an importer that you're going to go and have impact in their marketplace, 
then they're going to be more open to bringing in new things. If you're one of those spaghetti importers who's always just trying to put the burden on your distributor, eventually they're just going to stop. So that's the first place to start. So does that mean you have a significant PR person on your team that kind of like make sure that that gets queued up before you look at importing or before you look at creating that demand? What we want to do is have strong relationships with our distributors meaning that we have an impact in their marketplace. And so we created credibility for us as a company and for our brands, our existing brands. And so if we bring a new brand, then they have confidence that we've already vetted that brand to be in line with the rest of our portfolio. I think that that consistency is what's helped us grow is our distributors don't lack confidence in us as an importer. They're not worried that we're going to bring something that is just going to saddle them instead of we are always in support of our brand. And so I think that that's really the most important thing an importer can do is create the credibility with the marketplace, meaning your distributor, retail, restaurant community, that when you are bringing something to the market, that they're excited to taste what you're doing because they've enjoyed what you've done in the past. And there are too many importers who don't do that. And the primary vehicle for you creating that demand with distributors, is that through trade events or is that through um, it's just the, the existing relationships that you have with the established distributors? It's through trade events. It's through, we work the marketplace, right? So we'll go out and work directly with retailers or restaurateurs, as well as we know who our brand champions are at the distributor network. So we can also work with them. We give free samples to them to go out and take to the market. So we're, we support incentive programs, launch programs. Those are all important things to do as well. So your incentive program, you can never, as a small company, we can never outspend Gallo or Co-Brand or Deutsch or anyone like that. You want to be more creative with your programs. For example, we have a program that we're going to launch next year. One of our suppliers is in the fashion industry. They're very well known for custom-made shirts. So we're going to put a program together where you sell X amount of cases and you'll have a custom-made shirt. Someone will come and measure you and a little bit different, right? Than what uh, bigger companies just trying to throw around a lot of money. And in terms of circling back with having press, is that something that you're then passing back to the wineries to get them to make sure that they're cute? No, we do all the press. You do all the press. Okay. That's why it's important to develop those relationships with the press so that they taste your products. I think the smaller publications like a Venice or a Wine Advocate tend to be better at tasting more. I would say that Wine Enthusiast is very good. Wines and Spirits. The worst is the Wine Spectator. So the Wine Spectator has you submit a list of items and then they choose what they're going to taste. And it's random. And so what happens to the rest of the people? They do a disservice, I think, to their clientele by not offering a fuller selection. Of, so there are publications that do well and, and we focus on them. And there are publications that really, who knows why they're making a selection. And how do you work with your wineries to establish like a target retail price for the various markets? Really by tasting, by looking at a competitive set, uh, where they want to be. They might tell me they want to be $40 and I will tell them that 
they can be $40, but um, they're not going to take many dollars to the bank. So where you want to be and where you should be. But again, I've had wines that people said, we want to be $15. And I said, no, this should be $20. And so they can take more, more dollars to the bank. It's important that everyone makes money in the cycle, right? Otherwise, why would you want to support me? If I'm always trying to get the lowest price, why would you give me the best quality that you can give? Why would you be consistent in your quality? We want our suppliers, and that's what we talk about. What price is it that you want? We show them transparently where that's going to be in the market, meaning here's the cost for shipping a container price to our warehouse. Here's our in and out charges. Here's our margin based on that. Then here's our distributor margins. They have $8 landed freight and tax. So it's pretty much a third or three times. So if something costs a dollar in that country, to go through a national footprint is $3 to you. We talked a bit about how you work with distributors. How do you even select which distributors you want to work with in each market? When we first started, it was really people who sort of understood what we were trying to accomplish. And I'll give you an example. I was in New York City looking for a distributor and I had eight bottles of wine with me with no labels on them. And I made this appointment. It was a small company. Gentleman has a great palate. He was a little bit late to the appointment. I'm waiting there. He comes in. He's like, oh yeah, I made this appointment with you. You have wines from South America. He said, okay, we'll sit down. He's sitting down. He's on the phone. He's not paying attention to me. I open the bottles. I pour it in a glass on his desk. He picks it up. He's still on the phone, by the way. And he does this thing. He's swirling, sniffing, tasting. I do the next wine. He goes through the same process. I do the next wine. And then he just stops and he looks up at me and he said, I think I should probably pay more attention to you. And I never said a word because I couldn't say a word, but the wines said all the words they needed to. And so that was really important to me to find people who understood what we were trying to do. Because like I said, 20 years ago, our least expensive wine was $24 retail from Argentina, right? And people thought I was, cannabis had been legalized or something already because how could I have wines that expensive. But like I said, this gentleman stopped and said, and then he picked up the phone and started calling an account saying, I'm sending this guy over because he's got things you need to taste. It's that kind of revelation at that time that was really important is you need people to understand what you're trying to do. And it's not easy to find a distributor who wants to spend that time. And today we have a combination of sizes uh, from a single man distributorship in Iowa to multi-billion dollar companies in California or Texas or Florida. And they all have the role that they play. And I enjoy working with all of them because they play a significant part in who we are as a company. And so you mentioned the incentive with the custom-made shirt. One of the other ways that a lot of producers or importers work with distributors is to actually travel with them and do work with and sell, go to their accounts with them. How important is that relative to any of the other things you do with distributors and building demand? We have a sales team of 10 people around the country. And so they go and they work the market. They do work with with distributors. And that's what I was saying earlier is that you have to bring an impact to the marketplace, right? So if I have the right sales team, they're bringing the right impact, which gives confidence to your distributor. There are people who do work with and because that's part of their job, but they have no impact. We really look at it as more of a partnership in the sense that maybe we'll work with you for one or two accounts, and then we'll go off and work on our own as well. Because again, imagine your distributor has 10,000 
SKUs. I don't know how many suppliers that is, but it's a lot of suppliers. And every one of those suppliers always wants to come to the market. When would you ever get your job done? You really have to be willing to work on your own and work in maybe collaboration with that salesperson and say, hey, you know, I'm coming. Can you make me three appointments? And I'm going to go and I'll send you a recap on what I, this is what I'm going to present. And I'll send you a recap for you to follow up on the next time you're in that account. So those are examples of, yes, work with are great, but if I called you and wanted to work with you today, and then I called you and wanted to work with you tomorrow, and then so forth, I mean, when are you going to do what it is that you do? Which effective importers are ones who are willing to work on their own and establish those relationships with accounts on their own as well and see it as a collaboration with their distributor versus, well, I, I sold this, maybe you shouldn't get any money for it. Well, no. I mean, you know, they're out making sales too that you didn't have anything to do with. So it's a collaboration that, if successful, makes both companies successful. With your portfolio, do you ever have multiple distributors in the same region? So your salespeople might be going out selling your book and they then have to coordinate with multiple distributors? The answer to that is no. In general, you wouldn't have a distributor in the same region. So you could have someone in the same state two different people in the same state. For example, Tennessee really operates separately between Chattanooga, Nashville, and Memphis, right? And so we have three different distributors in Tennessee, but they don't overlap in sales territory. So in general, that's not too common. It does happen, for example, in the state of Massachusetts, which is a uh, franchise market, but it can be dual. So it means that both Robert and Peter can be my distributor in Massachusetts, but the rules are I have to give you the same pricing, but you can choose to have different pricing if you want. I just can't favor one over the other from a pricing standpoint or inventory standpoint, but it doesn't mean I have to work with you, Peter. I can only work with Robert if I choose. So that's not very common and not healthy either. You also have a very large socket book that you import. We do. Curious how that came about. I'm personally a big fan of a bunch of the breweries that you import. Well, thank uh, you. I've had a chance to taste a number of them. And uh, my wife loves sake, so therefore I love sake. I would like to say that I had an epiphany or something and somehow I could foresee. But the Reader's Digest version is that a friend of mine contacted me and said, hey, this guy I know in Japan is looking to export sake to the U.S. because he started a company in Japan called eSake.com. And that gentleman was John Gottner. John Gottner is probably the foremost English-speaking authority on sake in the world. And so we were a young company. We were two years old and open to all ideas of revenue streams and stuff like that. That seemed interesting. So I met John. John came to San Francisco and we met. And he told me he started this company, eSake.com. And they were having lots of requests for sake by their customers in Japan because it was geared towards uh, English-speaking expats in Japan, which turned out to be a small market. So I offered you know, John the ability to import and we would package and ship to his customers here in the U.S., but I told John I wasn't interested in sake. So John came back. We went to Il Fornaio, um on the Embarcadero for because our office was on Pier 19. And so John and I went to Il Fornaio in a good Italian restaurant to taste sake. So John had brought about a half dozen bottles with him. And we had lunch and he began to tell me the history and background of sake and production. And, and then we tasted throughout the lunch. 
And just like the story I told you about my distributor I was meeting with in New York, who after the third glass that I poured, he stopped and said, maybe I should pay attention to you. I stopped and told John, I'm going to import sake because the products did all the speaking. And I'm like, how is it possible that I have a lot of knowledge of this industry and I knew nothing about this product. And so this was in 2002 and I took the bottles back to my office and Ed is sitting there and I said, Ed, this is what we're doing next. And he looked at me like, what planet are you on? That's sake. And I said, let's go through these. And he had the same epiphany by the end that has it two guy genes who have been in the industry for a while uh, knew nothing about this, you know, this category and this product. And so Ed and I worked on this for a while. I went to Japan and worked at a, a brewery to understand production. We worked with John on how do we make this more accessible to you and I, because there's no way to read the kanji. And so we came up with a standardized back label. We came up with you know English given names, and that's how we got started how to make it accessible to us. And 20 years later, sake is now one of the fastest growing categories in the US. So I did not have an epiphany, but I guess I was smart enough to realize there was an opportunity. And, and, and so that was in line with our philosophy that, again, a category that has a history of production over 800 years, but no respect for that history of production. South America is the same way. I say to people, how is it that grapes that are grown on volcanic soil or limestone or granite or schist or in Chile, do they wake up in the morning and look at each other and say, you know, if we were only Chardonnay in Burgundy, we'd make great wine, but unfortunately we're limestone in uh, Chile, so we're relegated to making cheap wine? I don't get it. People don't give respect to South American wines that have the same geological provenance as wines from the old world, but yet somehow the limestone in France is more important and better than the limestone in Chile. I don't believe it's true. So that is how we got started with sake. And 20 years later, we're now 20% of the U.S. sake market, Japanese imported sake market. And how is selling sake different or, or I guess in some ways similar to wine? Like how do you compare and contrast those two products? People think, oh, is this distilled? So we recommend a wine glass. People should enjoy sake at a cellar temperature, not chilled, not warmed. But there's definitely plenty of styles of sake that should be enjoyed warm, especially when winter comes. There's lots of sake that we enjoy warmed to order. When you go to a Japanese restaurant and you see an 18-liter box that sits on a warmer and it's on that warmer until the 18 liters are depleted and they put a new box, it's the same thing if you drink coffee and you brew a pot of coffee in the morning and you have that first pot of coffee and it tastes great and you keep it on the warmer all day and you come home at five o'clock and you want a cup of coffee and you pour a cup of that same coffee, it's not going to taste it like it did in the morning. People's experience with hot sake was hot sake in an 18-liter box that was the lowest common denominator of sake on a warmer for days, and then somehow they were supposed to enjoy it. So hot sake is great, but warm to order. And also stylistically, you're not going to do Junmai Daiginjo as hot sake. So I think that that's important. And if you look at our website, Kome Collective, we've re-expressed how we want to look at sake. It's more style now versus grade, right? I mean... 
not all Junmai Daiginjos are made the same or all Junmais are made the same. And so if you're a tequila drinker, you might like a certain style of sake that we have. And so we're giving those associations. We're putting them into categories of fruity and floral or round and rustic. And if you're a Cabernet drinker, you might like something that's more round and rustic versus a Sauvignon Blanc drinker who likes fruity and floral. So we want to get away from looking at the grades and things like that. Because also there are 47 prefectures and 46 Ebru sake And just like in wine, you have an expression of place. And so they are different. So it's a very complex beverage. It's also gluten-free and it's sulfite-free. So for people who have issues with gluten or sulfites, or at least perceived, then here's a whole category that they can get into and be just as geeky about it as they could wine if they wanted to. And how much overlap is there with your distribution and sales accounts with wine? Is it often the same distributors or is it a, do you have a different set of distributors for sake? No, we, we, we keep the same distribution network. And so there's a lot of education that you had to do on your distributors or they, or they were already in this space? I think part of our success on the sake side and even on the South American side is because of how important we view education. So if you go to our website, you'll see it's pretty extensive, but also... Monica Samuels, who's our VP of of sake, is an amazing educator. So I think that we're fortunate on the wine side. Lizzie Butler is one of the foremost educators on South American wine. So we invest a lot in that. And it's super important to us because that's, you have to be comfortable. It's like going to French class. You're not going to speak French after one day. You have to continue to go. And so we have to continue to educate as well so that people can get more comfortable with sake because we're not talking about ML and barrel fermented and surlies and so forth. So although your distributors are the same, I would assume your end sales accounts would look a little different between wine and, and sake. They do look different. Obviously, we have a big Asian side on the Kome Collective, but also our main focus, one of our main focuses with Kome Collective is non-Asian. How do we sell to French Laundry, for example, Paris Say in New York, or lots of those uh, restaurants are great accounts for us. So it, it's great to have that knowledge on how to sell wine, because you can also take that to the marketplace on how to sell sake, because it's a lot of the same, right? It's quality beverage with a story, family history, sense of place, uh, all those things. So what do you see as the next big trends for wine importing in the U.S.? I mean, if you look at Gen Z, they're drinking less alcohol. They're drinking non-alcoholic products. I'm not sure how that all computes. What I see is the next trend being more premium, right? That the sub $10 category, I think, is going to continue to erode and go away. And I think that having products that are authentic, smaller production, also producers that are good stewards of the land. I think uh, those types of producers are going to resonate and I don't believe you know the categories are going to go away. And I think that even Gen Z, as they get older, you know, they get to their mid-30s, are going to look for wine as well. And so, or, and I think spirits that are more interesting, not sort of mass-produced spirits, but more craft spirits. I just think that the world is going to drink less, but they're going to drink better. And I think that's where, where things are going to go. So we like to wrap up every episode on a personal note. And so we are curious, what is the most coveted wine you have in your cellar? And when do you plan on drinking it? 
Well, it's a good question. And I saw that question. And I have a close friend who recently passed away who gave me a bottle of 45 Mouton. And so it sits there and it reminds me of him, So, which is a great thing. I'm a little bit reluctant to open it, but at the same time, very curious to see how that wine has come along in almost 80 years, right? I think uh, I'm going to wait for 2025 and it'll be 80 years old. And I'll hope that it has life and I still have a lot to look forward to reaching my 80s. So that's the bottle that I have that means the most to me at the moment in my cellar. Well, thank you for uh, for sharing that with us and all of your uh, knowledge on importing all the wines and sake. I think it's a very interesting perspective to kick off our series on wine importing. Well, I hope it was a little bit insightful. I really appreciate your time and interest. And, and I think that if people come away with one thing about importers, they need to turn the bottle around and see who the importer is. And I think that the consumer needs to make a connection with that importer. Because if you like what they're doing, that'll help you make future choices. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. 